Good afternoon. My name is Judy Koch. I'm the Richard and Elizabeth Curry Chief of Public Programming and Learning. And I had the opportunity just a few minutes ago to go up into the exhibition, which is extraordinary this year. It's really um, a really strong and beautiful presentation. So I can't tell you how thrilled I am to, to participate tonight and to welcome you all um, to this panel discussion. We're gathered this afternoon on land um, that is treaty land of the Mississauga, the New Credit Mississauga, land on which the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat, and the Anishinaabe have thrived through time. I'd like to introduce now the uh, Michael and Sonia Kerner, Director and CEO of the Art Gallery of Ontario, Stefan Yost. Hello, I'm Stefan, and again, welcome to um, the AMIA exhibition. Um, there's four extraordinary artists we're going to hear from today. Um, Liz Johnson-Arthur, Raymond Bajolet, uh, Taisuke Koyama, and Hank Willis-Thomas. Um, their work is amazing. I went up this morning and I saw it, and it, it's really pretty powerful and very diverse. Um, these projects come together uh, because Sophie Hackett and her staff work on these exhibitions. And I'm going to just do a shout out. We're, we're all passionate about photography, and we all want to learn about photography. And some of you may not know, but Hank Willis Thomas's mother is Deb Willis, who's one of the most important curators. Um, and she has written extensively about the history of photography. You can't really be well educated in the history of photography without reading her books. So I'm giving a plug out to her, because um, it's great. Four amazing artists. This is the 10th year of our partnership with AMIA. Um, it's a pretty unique prize because you, the public, vote on it. Um, and so often it creates a lot of conversation, competition, uh, generosity of spirit and discussion. Um, and it's one of those things where um, you can vote online, you can vote in person, um, and at the end of the day, there's about $90,000 going from AMIA right into the artist's pockets. Um, and I want to thank AMIA. Um, this initially started with um, Rupert Duchesne, who, who was head of AMIA, and now Vince Timpano, um, and an incredible team there, which has kept it going for for a decade. I want to talk a little bit about last year's winner, was Ursula Schultz Donberg. Ursula is a, a senior artist from Germany. The public voted her as the um, as the as the winner. Um, we had a little dinner where it was announced that she was winning the $50,000 prize. And she really blew us all away because she immediately said that she was going to sign this prize over to the CO Foundation. And this is a foundation in Berlin that teaches recent refugees from Syria to use a camera to document their life to understand and it's really an amazing kids program. And it was just, I loved it that you, the public, um, decided that this prize should go to this extraordinary woman and um, obviously Amia for, for providing that money. Now, I also think this prize changes lives because um, at the end of the day, artists can only make work if they have the financial means to make it. So buy artists' work. That's kind of the bottom line there. And sometimes artists give away the 50000 and other times they use it to live for a year or two years or whatever so they can continue making great work. And that's really the goal is to make sure great artwork is 
being made. Um, on that note, I want to invite the Director of Community Engagement for AMIA, um, Alden Hadwin, to the podium. Good evening. I'm so excited to see such a big crowd here. AMIA's participation in this photography prize has been one of our most exciting journeys and experiences and ways to learn, especially through our partnership with the AGO. We have learned so much from them, and at the same time, they have taught us, well, the, the art of partnership when sometimes it's a different language because the, the language of curators and the language of business Anyway, we have found a very happy way to communicate. And on that note, since the beginning of this prize, one of its main objectives has been dialogue, to inspire a dialogue around the art of image making, photography and other kinds of image making which are sometimes inspired by photography or which in turn work in uh, collaboration with photography. So that dialogue, which I hope you will all have amongst yourselves when you see the exhibition, it's marvelous. And when you've heard this panel speak again, that will be marvelous because our artists are so great this year. Um, so the dialogue is the key and I hope that above everything else that happens, whether you enjoy one work more than another or one artist's approach, that the conversation about why they do what they do and how they do it will be what you take away this evening. So on behalf of AMIA, I hope you enjoy very much the talk, the exhibition, and uh, that you will all vote. Thank you very much. Now. <laughs> I also want to introduce the next person to come on the stage, and that is the wonderful Sophie Hackett, who is the Curator of Photography at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alden, and thank you all for being here this evening. It's a real thrill for the fourth time to be leading the jury for the AMIA AGO Photography Prize. Um, as we reviewed this year's shortlist for 2017, my fellow jurors and I, uh, so my fellow jurors were Ken Lum, an esteemed artist and faculty member at the University of Pennsylvania, and Eva Rispini, who's the chief curator at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. Uh, we asked ourselves, you know, what is urgent today in contemporary photography? And we found one answer to that question in the work of the four artists that we are honoring today. In their distinct and compelling practices, these artists impressed us with their rigor and their ambition, but also chiefly with their ability to highlight what information photographs convey. How is this information transmitted to us? In what form? And how does this influence our relationships to one another in our contemporary landscape? Each nominee in their way aims to transform our understanding of the world in which we live. I'm delighted that the AGO is able to showcase the work by these shortlisted artists in Toronto this fall. Please join me in welcoming to the stage the 2017 AMIA AGO Photography Prize nominees, Liz Johnson-Arter, Raymond Boisjoli, Taisuke Koyama, and Hank Willis-Thomas.
right. So what will happen this evening is you know, we have 45 minutes roughly uh, in conversation um, here on stage. And after, afterwards, we'll have a few moments for questions. Um, I'm going to direct questions to each of, each of the artists, but I'm also hoping they're going to ask each other some questions, too. Um, I'm going to start off with, with Liz. Resplendent in lavender here this evening. Um, you, you've referred to your photographs collectively as the Black Balloon Archive. How did that start? Well, the name or the archive? <laughs> Either, both. Well, it's two different things in the sense that I started doing what I'm doing. I'm not good with numbers, but it's a long time ago. Uh, and I've been just doing it, and at some point, there was this idea or the thought that I have to take this more serious. And I think when I started thinking about that, I thought about what it actually is that I'm doing. And, you know, I'm talking here about 10 years difference between starting and thinking what I'm actually doing. So I called it an archive because I like archives. I think archives represent what I like to do in my work, which is to observe, to collect, and to preserve. So that's what I kind of tried to do with my work. And what is it that you are hoping to preserve in your archive? For me, there's two things. I like to talk about representation because that's what I do. I represent people. I photograph people. I meet people. And I also love photography. And these two things came together very simultaneously, I think, looking back. Probably not, but looking back, that's how I like to look at it. And uh, both things are important for me in the sense that they need to be preserved. I like to preserve a representation as a self-presentation because I think it's one of the most exciting things to meet someone. And when you have a camera, you have a reason to ask for this self-presentation. Mm -hmm. You know, when you just have a conversation, you get something else. But with a camera, I can ask or find a way to get this. And it's something that carries my work. Mm. Often, uh, when, when you've approached people, you're, you're, you're very sort of observant and engaged, I think, when you're on the street, when you're in public. Uh, and when you ask someone uh, about whether or not you can photograph them, they've, uh, the, you've often reassured them by saying, I'll keep you in good company. Yeah, I, I think it's the easiest way to explain that they're going to a good place. <laughs> and, you know, when you work on the street, there's times where you have time and times where you don't have no time. But there is, for me, when I'm with a camera, and I'm not always with a camera, uh, where I do want something. And I think having an archive, I take this very serious when I say I keep you in good company, because I do believe that archives are something anyone can start for whatever you do. But I also believe that only when you take it serious, it actually can become something. And that's something that I had to learn over time. Was there something missing in the images you saw around you that perhaps helped propel what it is that you, that you do? Well, from my own personal perspective, I looked at photographs of black people much earlier than I actually met them. So these pictures for me were always quite, that was my 
entry, you know, into something that I didn't have access to in a physical way. But it, as I said, it coincided understanding this, but also understanding that the thing that gets me with these, because I like these pictures, and in my photography, I try to give reference to those pictures that I like to say is something that has sustained the test of time. And I do like to have that in my archive. But to just round it up, I think it's a thing where, you know, when I say I keep you in good company, it means the reason why I do this is because I do think it's it's important to show people how they represent themselves. And that's regardless of color or anything. I think it, it's good for anyone. Um, maybe Raymond or Hank would, would want to sort of reflect on this question too uh, of, of trying to I don't know, shift an existing image record um, and why that might be uh, an important thing to take on, particularly now. Uh, in terms of my own approach to that would be the lack of fixity in terms of the meaning or use of images is never settled. So it's about um, demonstrating an agency in front of the image, the way in which we can actually organize ourselves differently to sort of, I guess, heed the call of what that image has been or how it has been used and how it is we can like negotiate that differently for ourselves. Yeah, well, we also, we often use photographs as proof or as a document or an artifact to show that something happened or we were somewhere or that we met someone. And I've always been more fascinated with the lie of photography in that uh, most everything is an illusion. And uh, the most common illusion I think we see when we take vernacular photographs is if someone puts up, picks up a camera, we lean in to one another and start to <laughs> smile. Uh, and that becomes our reality, even if we've never met the person we're standing next to. Uh, and, and I'm really curious about uh, how what's going on outside of the frame of the camera affects the way we see and understand the truth. And so archives um, that we make and also archives that we collect or find um, through uh, historical um, institutions is, is gives us an opportunity to actually maybe remake or reinterpret uh, reality and reinterpret the language of the truth, quote unquote. Can I? Sure, jump in. I have to jump into this because I think what I really enjoy being here is, as people said before, that we have a conversation and that there's different points of view. And like for me personally, I looked at these pictures that's supposed to be documents. And I looked at them and I thought, the thing what I look at them is because really I want to be there when this picture is taken. And I think that's why I take photographs, because I want to be there when that moment happens. So I think there's many ways of looking at archives and documents and many ways of how to approach them. So it's about a presentness in some way. I think it's open, you know. I think it should be an open playing field. I think that certain cultures get represented as documents, and you know, we're at a time where we have to make life to these documents from whatever angle. And I think the show, including all of us, brings that conversation up. Yeah, I like that to make life, to make life. Um, 
Hank, you're, you're premiering some new work here up on the fifth floor. Um, I know this looks like a terrible photograph. I will, I will say that it's a terrible iPhone shot I took of um, Hank's new work. Uh, it is shown in a gallery without, without light, and that's for a really very uh, real reason. Um, these works are activated. They're screen prints on a retro-reflective vinyl, and they're activated in a really particular way. Hank, would you tell us uh, about that? So the, uh, these images are screen prints of white ink on retroreflective, and retroreflective is the material that we are most common with seeing on street signs, where at nighttime, during the daytime, it doesn't glow, but only glows if it's the headlights of your car that illuminates it. That's basically what's happening here. And so when you, the, you can view the work as it is here, which is somewhat like a negative, and then if you take a flash photograph of it or put a flashlight near your eye, um, it becomes a positive image like, like this. Um, I was really interested in, I'm, I'm interested in visibility and kind of the late images, the stories that we don't see. And because uh, we, there are more images taken in a single second than any of us can make sense of in our, ent our entire lives, I find it necessary for many photographic thinkers to actually try to give new life and new meaning and new purpose to images that we've kind of buried under um, our kind of over consumption of, of, of images in the past, especially 10 or 15 years. And for me, it's an opportunity to see that the past is present looking at um, how things from 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago can speak so eloquently and look so similar to things today. And so I also, miss being in the dark room and miss um, the magic of like finding an image or, or watching an image come to life. And this was kind of part of my uh, recreation of that experience for myself. So when you do go upstairs, you'll see this. And then you can use your device, either a smartphone or there's, there are glasses with LED that you can use to uh, reveal the image to yourself. Do you want to say anything about the source images that people will re might reveal, or might come forward in these pictures, well, in the, these a, works? A lot of the images that are part of this exhibition are from the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement. This picture specifically is from St. Augustine, which is, I think, the oldest city in uh, North America, or I believe so, and it was uh, a segregated city in where Martin Luther King uh, brought uh, a large group of people to protest the segregation, and it was seen as a failed movement because of the violence that came as a result of it, and right, it was right before the Selma March. And I guess I always say, think it's a, the road to progress is always under construction, meaning that we're always, we, we want to believe that at some point we'll make it to either the promised land or the, the moment where we've, all, we've, we've overcome, but I find that every time we think we've reached a new plateau, there's always new work to be made, and we can't only look at the successes and we can't only look at the setbacks. We have to consider them both, and I think I, I, I being the son of a photographer and photo historian, I, I grew up looking at archives and photographic archives and seeing and I'm still, it's, it's brand new. I don't know really what to think. I just hope that people go in the room and tell me what they think and think, don't think the room is broken because <laughs> the lights are off and, I'm like, and I've never shown, it's scary to show photographs in a dark room. And so I'm, I, I also, also feel challenged by the fact that 
these are images that I'm not sure, I don't fully feel comfortable showing or, or feel responsible or authorship of, but I do think they need to be seen. So um, it's, yeah, it's a, a curious journey for me. You're also making uh, some photographs visible in another way. Uh, there are two, in fact, sculptures on the fifth floor. This is one called uh, Translation from Afrikaans is The Past Books Must Burn. Um, why did you choose this, this sculpture and the other sculpture, Raise Up, are details of photographs from the 1950s. Um, why did you choose bronze, and why make them three-dimensional? How, do, how does this... Uh, how does this make us see them differently? Well, I was inspired by Roland Barthes' book, Camera Lucida, which I actually don't think is a particularly good book. But he uh, <laughs> proposes these two ideas, which are the punctum and the studium. And I think the studium is basically what's in the picture, and the punctum is the thing that you like in the picture. And, and he calls it that which pierces you, uh, the thing that haunts you. And I was really... Uh, looking at a lot of images of, from the apartheid era when I was doing a show in South Africa, and I was pierced, you know, like by um, the the potency of the, the collective struggle, uh, the con collective um, oppression, and the ways in which people work together to uh, to change and are still working together to change uh, the status quo, and they did that through, in this case when the government uh, imposed a, a passbook system which controlled who was allowed to go where and who was what kind of person, et cetera, uh, there were laws that meant that you could go to jail for up to five years if you were found without your passbook. And what many people do did is they came together and they were in their passbooks. And um, it seemed both like a, a futile gesture but also saying what does it mean to, to collectively go into uh, anonymity or um, to the unknown through a gesture like this. And so I'm really uh, trying to take moments of historical relevance to me and represent them in three-dimensional space so that we as viewers have like a phenomenological experience or relationship to um, these moments that we have seen in photographs or not. I like how they how they become monuments to these act to well in this case an act of resistance too that this is like the a small moment but perhaps one that um, well we shouldn't forget as you're as you're saying um, one last question before uh, before we move on to uh, I'll talk to to Raymond next um, but in one of our in one of our conversations as we plan for this exhibition you quoted part of an Audrey Lord poem uh, the, the fragment which you kind of pulled out was. It is, was, is it, it is better to speak remembering that we were never meant to survive. Um, tell us how that, how that plays out in your work, tell us or how it feeds your work. Well, there's a, it's from a poem. Audre Lorde is a poet, woman, warrior, lesbian, activist, mother. Um, one of the first uh, artists, I think, who really redefined or helped to define this notion of being intersectional, being more than one thing, so to speak, and uh, in her book, The Black Unicorn, she wrote a poem called A Litany for Survival, and uh, I don't remember all of it, but some of the last few lines are like, when we're hungry, uh, we're afraid that, when we're, we're, we're in love, we're afraid that love will, will uh, disappear, and we're, um, we're, without love, we're afraid that love will never come, and 
she makes all these references to these different kind of ways in the glass is half empty, empty or the glass is half full. And she says oh, at the last line, it's, okay, you have it here. Like it right and, we, <laughs> and we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. And I do think it, this idea of we're all, we're all gonna die and many of us fear it and many of us uh, come up with many reasons not to use our voices and there is, through that poem, helped me realize that I'm, you know, I might as, I, I have a mouth and I have eyes or hands. I have many, number, many ways that I can speak and if I don't, I'm missing an opportunity to, uh, to, to further life, so to speak. Not only mine, but all life. I hope. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yes, please. <laughs> words to take part with. Raymond, I'm going to move to you. I'm going to move actually on to, uh, this is not a work that is upstairs, but I think is emblematic of, uh, of speaking of speaking, and speaking of words and the power of words. Um, there is, a, there is, this is sort of a stand-in also for a new work that you're premiering upstairs, a new text work. Um, sorry, I need to turn my page here. You often pair words with images. What, uh, what do they, what do these kind of letter forms, I suppose we could call them, what do they add to your installations and why is their presence important? I'm uh, very interested in w what it means to work with text, specifically in installation circumstances, because text can often be seen to model a kind of authority in these spaces. Uh, they can feel as though it's like uh, it's ambiguous in terms of who it is might be sort of writing these or speaking these. So um, my, my interest in it is in how it is it can um, maybe uh, motivate a thought for the, the, the wider context that work emerges from. In some cases, it's a wish to deal with the, the discursive aspect um, of the, the images that I'm dealing with. It can be about like how are these things known and discussed and how is it that I might be able to sort of think about the, the life of these images in relation to um, uh, this work. Um, I, like uh, a thing I think about a lot is this idea of uh, the work that work leaves undone, an idea of the, uh, uh, the value of like all of the administrative work that proceeds to a certain extent justifies, explains, or makes possible art. Like uh, Canada is, uh, is a place where visual art is highly administrated. Um, it's, uh, it's a place where, uh, where sort of artwork is usually preceded by grant writing processes. So uh, in this case, uh, I was looking at um, text and what it might be like to take uh, a mock administrative language as, uh, as uh, I guess, a literary sort of form mm -hmm. in and of itself, as opposed to in the service of something else. Uh, so I created these, uh, these uh, texts that kind of had a very, like, uh, like uh, maybe ominous, but also perhaps aspirational 
sort of language. That was kind of about uh, um, discussing these particular images. These images I made utilized the film uh, by Maya Darren called uh, The Divine Horseman or The Living Gods of Haiti. Uh, it, it's a document she created and was edited posthumously where she went to Haiti to explore the importance of dance to voodoo and ritual. Uh, so I was very interested in sort of uh, like her own narrative through which she is personally transformed in relation to the subject matter, where she figures out that in order to make this work, she has to change herself. Um, she has to become a Vudun initiate. So um, uh, very interested in these ideas of, uh, of transformation. That I kind of, uh, it was a thing when I heard um, uh, I guess the thing I've been thinking about in relation to the, the discussions that have happened so far this evening is about this idea of how it is like images are activated, uh, what, like what meanings they come to take on, how is it that we might understand the experience of others through them, and, uh, and these sculptural works from these historical photographs. It's kind of like, uh, like how it is that we might be able to deal with or at least gesture towards the political reality depicted in them, how to like materialize that in space. Uh, so in this case, really interested in uh, an anxiety of the visual that it's like, what can an image actually communicate? Uh, to what extent can that image communicate its subject matter or information on its own? And to what extent uh, is it something that requires a host to perhaps communicate a more full or complex message, or at least provide some understanding of a different possibility that the image can't do individually. Uh, so uh, these images are made uh, um, uh, playing this film by Maya Darren on a, um, an iPad and placing that iPad on a flatbed scanner. So the scanner tries to capture it, but it's a, it's a fugitive image. So it's about the futility of it, this idea that, uh, that what is placed in front of the captured device is, is never fixed. It uh, provides, uh, I guess, an indication of the fact that even when it uh, appears to be so, there's always something of it that escapes our vision. Well, that's certainly at work, and uh, this is a, a different installation from Vox in Montreal, but of the same piece that is upstairs, uh, called From Age to Age, as its shape slowly unraveled. Um, and so you see the totality of the installation there, just about, and here is a, one of the details, one of the images, and you can see the, uh, there's a similar process you're employing here um, by having a scanner attempt to capture a moving image, um, and what is, um, can't see how evident it is on the large screen, but what you can definitely see in the gallery space is how the image breaks up this, uh, this almost monochromatic black and white uh, image becomes color, uh, and, and there's this, this image drag that happens. Um, this, uh, the film, in this in, in question here, so you were talking about Maya Darren, but you're also, this particular body of work has its beginnings in a 1953 film, so we've got the 50s and 60s well covered in some aspects uh, upstairs. Um, the film is called Les Statues Meurent Aussi, or Statues Also Die. It's by Chris Marker, Alain René, uh, and a third filmmaker whose name I didn't record, Ghislain Cloquet. Um, 
At the beginning of the film, uh, someone intones, when we die, we enter into history. When statues die, they enter into art. This botany of death is what we call culture. Um, do you want to comment on that feeling and whether, or, or sentiment, and whether how it, how it links or doesn't link to what you're up to? Uh, a thing that I strangely found myself talking about a lot in Toronto um, this year and last year is the colonial circumstances of art. Um, art as a historical category, art which uh, uh, people aren't provided equal access to as a category of practice. Um, uh, like uh, it, it's an intensely uh, gendered and colonial thing to the extent that uh, that non-Western peoples and women, their work was often seen as simply craft, and they weren't often attributed as uh, authors of their works. Um, so, I, like in this case, I was very interested in uh, in this. Uh, uh, I guess the relevance of this film to the encounter with um, like indigenous material practices uh, and the ways in which uh, um, it's uh, it's an interesting time to to encounter such an intensely anti-colonial film, uh, specifically because it's only after this film, uh, in a very general way, that um, people are named as the creators of works of art from, uh, like indigenous artists are named as, um, as the creators of works, as opposed to general cultural categories or perhaps nations. Uh, so after this, you have like, a, um, you hear names, you hear that people did this, specific people. Uh, so in this case, it's uh, like a very interesting historical document to me. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in the, I guess that awareness of the, the contingent character of art as something that hasn't always existed. And it's important to try and find out how it does exist uh, and how it could exist otherwise in terms of its maybe historical omissions or its uh, uh, tendencies or predilections. Uh, what is it that, uh, that we even mean when we speak its name? Uh, what is it that, uh, that we exclude by speaking of this too? Thank you. I'm gonna ask Taisuke a few questions now and we might come back yeah. to some of those thoughts. <laughs> it's time, isn't it? Um, so as uh, Raymond was explaining in his work how he's used and misuses, deliberately misuses some technology, um, that's certainly uh, very much at work in your work. Yeah. He, this is a piece from 2009. It's sort of a, an, an early part of the overall sort of long series that you can see on view upstairs called Rainbow Variations, but this is one of the first things. Can you tell us what, what is happening here? Yeah, um, this is a, a series entitled Rainbow Form, and uh, this is an image uh, of the close-up shot of the advertising poster in Tokyo. It's uh, on the vending machine, and this is uh, uh, one of the campaign graphic images of the uh, drink brand. And uh, of course, we had a lot of vending machine in the city of Tokyo. You can see it everywhere, you know. And uh, when the campaign starts, the same poster you know, it, it's uh, uh, put in the old vending machine. Yes. And, uh, and uh, uh, around the 2000, from the 2006 to 2010, I'm walking around Tokyo to taking a picture every day, like uh, uh, six or seven hours, you know. And uh, suddenly I realized that uh, all of that vending machine looks like an actual rainbow in the city. 
and uh, I often use a uh, macro lens to taking the detail of the images. So um, I start to taking this picture, and uh, I realize uh, they have a. Uh, of course, they looks like rainbow, but uh, they had a print small printing dots, and uh, some sometimes they had uh, scratches or stickers, and uh, a lot of things on the surface. So and uh, and I think the rainbow is a. Uh, uh, one of the visual language for our, you know, um, um, society, because uh, it's uh, related a lot of things like uh, um, history of the optic or history of the, um, of course, photography or a lot of things. So, so then I focused about this series, yeah, to make the other variations, yeah. And you have you started working, I think, in earnestness in 2003, right? You, uh, 2003? In 2003? Yeah, yeah. About, and you've only ever worked digitally, correct? Yeah, With because, um, because I, I bought a um, very small digital camera in 2003, and uh, I remember that date because uh, it was, I don't know, but it was so shock for me because it's really handy and, uh, you know, I can make uh, a lot of, I can take a lot of images and uh, I also can edit in the uh, software or and I don't have any, you know, um, special um, study about the art and photography, so it's really... Um, right, you have a background yeah. in biology and environmental yeah, and, uh, science, right? Yeah, so, so it's totally really handy for me. And at that day, suddenly I think I, I'm uh, going to be a you know, photographer or photographic artist, so yeah. Mm. But you're clearly still very attuned to the to an environment, both sort of physical environment, but also uh, an image environment. Mm, mm. Correct. Yeah. Um, what we're looking at here is uh, again, I will say my, my bad installation view of, of no. Taisuke's um, installation, uh, where you can see a number of these stands that have more than 14 foot prints sort of draped over, and up above is a video monitor that uh, there are one of three um, that houses another series called Pico. Mm. Can you talk about the possibility? I think part of what's so fascinating about your work and is that each time you show it, it has a slightly different form, which is part of what makes the digi what what is uh, the digital information mm. allows you to do this. Um, but you also work from one series to the next, so there are in fact um, four or five different series present, yeah. but in a new form in this way. Can you talk about that image culture, that technological advance? Um, or not advances, those, those technological conditions that allow for this and why, mm. that, why it's important to you to work this way. Yeah, um, um, at my starting point, I was thinking about the city of Tokyo. And, uh, and after we had a, uh, I had a, no, we had a uh, huge earthquake in 2011 in Japan. And uh, I went to the, um, that site to taking some pictures for the uh, magazine. And uh, but uh, and uh, but the uh, um, uh, uh, damaged area is so huge, and uh, I feel I can take you know uh, I can of course I can take a lot of images, but uh, um, I can't take anything you know because uh, the situation is huge, and at that moment I'm thinking about the limitation of the photography. So but um, then I think that limitation is a. Uh, kind of possibility of photography. And uh, when I um, moved to London, I researched about a lot of the 
experimental photography or science photography. And then I realized the history of photography is a kind of technology of the camera or technology of the devices. So, so and then I'm um, really, uh, for me, it's a really important thing to use uh, devi uh, digital devices uh, to make uh, um, my images. Yeah. And you use not only a camera, but software, yeah, scanners, and, uh, of like of a hand, handheld scanner. It's like a, it's kind of digital gadget, but right. yeah, you can scan by yourself, by your hand. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I use a, a digital handy microscope. Yeah, it's also very small, and uh, we can capture the very small details of the image. So. And again, this may not be evident, but uh, yeah. this is from the series Pico, of which there are images, but also um, a moving piece called Pico Infinity. And tell us what a Pico is. Yeah, Some um, people may know, but yeah. I did not before this. Yeah. Um, Pico means uh, small in Italy, and it's also the uh, name of the particle of the inkjet print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, for this work, I use the um, handheld scanner and uh, handy microscope to capture the details of the images. And uh, I- The images from your other series prior. Yeah, same, same uh, rainbow form series. Right. And uh, I have uh, 72 images of Pico, but uh, all the images uh, comes from just one single uh, rainbow form mm. pictures. And, uh, and uh, I capture the 10 by 15 pixel of the monocolor of the images. And then I blow up the 1,500 times larger. So when I see the very small pixel, I can see only the like red or green or you know, just the color. Right. But when I blow up, I can see the very you know um, subtle changing the color or details. So sure. yeah. Well, a sort of grain becomes evident in these. Yeah, but uh, kind of the this grain is uh, I'm using uh, um, developing software. Mm. You know, because uh, when I use a uh, grain, you know, you can, of course, it's digital images, but uh, you also think about the uh, analog photography and, uh, you know, so sure. what's the difference and uh, so, yeah. Sure, the components, the components thereof. The, um, the space that you share upstairs, you share the, so Liz and Taisuke um, have, share a gallery, the large, the uh, kind of the, one of the main spaces on the fifth floor. Um, and you, you have both in different ways said to me that you really in, you have appreciated that combination of your, of your work. Would you, would you say why? Um, because, um, because I think the photography is a um, very, um, um, how can I say, very um, changing situation at this moment. And uh, we have a lot of possibility and uh, we had uh, uh, a lot of diversity of the images. So, I'm really enjoyed to, you know, exhibit with these works because it's, um, it, I think it's very different, but some of the part we can, of course, we have a relationship of the images, so uh, uh, trying to do, to make the uh, relationship to the viewers, you know, mm. with the images. To so. connect in a, in a different way. Liz, do you want to pick that up and say? I can tell you my perspective, yes. <laughs> I think it's nice, it's actually wonderful, because I think that having your exhibition next to mine, I think it's a wonderful way to walk in and out, you know? It's a space where you can walk from one end to the other, and you can see one thing from one end and the other thing from another. And 
for me, I think that's how I like to move. You know, I like to see things from all kinds of ways. And I also think the fact that you work so into the detail, yeah. you know, and me, I'm like, I take anything. <laughs> you know? I think that's, that's also something that is very nice. You know, it's nice to, because I, I have to agree, I think it's about conversations. And I think these kind of conversations I really enjoy. But we have the other two, which I think is quite interesting as well. You know, to, to go around the corner, yeah. you know. So, well, yeah. We sort of have a crowd scene, and then we have sort of two specific, yeah. two other specific yes. experiences. Um, I see my colleagues standing, ready uh, to take questions. It might be question time from the audience, but we should, um, you should all feel free to circle back to any of the points. You want to say something first? Uh, a thing I'm surprised with with the exhibition is like, uh, like some fairly involved like material investigations that are present in all of them, like. Uh, not necessarily like uh, like any singular thing repeated over and over, but like a like like a fairly wide variety of like material um, um, like questions. Yeah. So that's been a, a I think a really useful thing to see, and maybe um, would definitely be interested because working as like I teach in a photo program, and that's an important thing to communicate. Like, oh yeah, photography is just these people like messing around in a lab trying to fix a fugitive image using chemicals. Like the history of it is about like the perceived possibility of it and the, the discovery of the process through which it, it can be done. So I'm definitely like excited about that, that thing, even like uh, the way in which um, it's not given a singular sort of, uh, um, I guess, manifestation. So definitely interested maybe if uh, people could speak to the, the ways in which maybe like uh, um, it is about finding different possibilities for the image to like exist as an object. Like is the existence of the image as an object an important thing? Mm. I'm curious, I think that's a good question for you because as I was looking at your, at your a great picture maker, but I was also looking at, you probably have 10 different approaches to presenting images? I think it's, 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 it's a different process to taking a picture and showing a picture. And I think for me that's the process that uh, one is very familiar and the other one is quite fresh. And I think, I'm, I suppose because I've been doing them for a long time, I really enjoy now showing them. And for me, photography is, the way I see it, a photograph, it, it's a, it has a visual tactility, you know. I like to touch a picture. I like, I can look at a photograph. So you're saying we can touch your pictures even though science... You know, <laughs> you know, me, if it's just me, yes. But because this is a big institution, they have all these rules and regulations, you know. Just the picture touching the glass was a, you know, not an easy issue. So, yes, I do think that it's not just a physical thing. I, I do think, for me, photography is something that has a certain history. That's what I talk about, that uh, it sustains a certain test of time. And that's purely through the fact that we can somehow find some kind of relation to it. And I think, I agree with you, it's the, the process of how we achieve a picture that I find very interesting because when you get nominated, you wonder who else, no? And then at some point it comes up, who else? And you look, and I'm just not good with the screen, you know? It's just not my kind of thing. So I was 
theorists to come and see. And I think that's the thing that I find very exciting as well, because I do think there's many ways of looking at images and experiencing them. And that's why I like our combination, because there is something that is for the eye and for whatever it is. But I do think that, you know, we live in a very visual world, but if it comes to rules and regulation, they're usually written down, you know? So I think visual language is one not to underestimate. So with that, maybe we'll take a few questions from the audience. Thank you, Liz. That's a really amazing way to seg to the next phase. So there are people roaming the, uh, the roaming the alleys here um, with microphones, uh, should you have a burning question for our panelists. Uh, and please do wait for it to come to you as we're um, recording this. Oh, me. Yeah, okay, uh, uh, all right, Hank, go. Oh, I had a question for you because I think as a curator, I, at a time when photography is changing, I, I wonder what, how you went about, and, and all of our work being pretty diverse in the way that we even, within our own practices, I think the work is diverse. So how do you, how, what was your experience in putting the question? show together. Well, I think one of my, the chief pleasures of being involved with this prize, uh, because mostly, technically, my day job is to deal with the old stuff, um, but this allows me to dally a little bit in the realm of today, which is sort of where I started as a curator. Um, and what I, what I found thrilling through the different moments that I've been involved is how, in fact, how diverse the practice has been, Then you have to follow where the artists lead you. Um, so it's allowed me to think about space in a different way. Um, this is my first time installing on the fifth floor uh, these galleries, so I had to rely on the expertise of my, my contemporary colleagues. Um, but there were sort of volumes there to think about, and so um, I was thinking a lot about that, a lot about volume, a lot about how the experience of walking through it, about how the image confronts the viewer, um, uh, both, you know, as you move from artist to artist, but also within each artist's work. Um, and I think I was thinking about the things that you, the things that you have in common, the sort of ping-ponging that might happen again as someone walks through an exhibition, um, but then also the things that are different. I think you need this play of, um, of contrast between, I don't know, bronze um, and uh, reflection, <laughs> something that's so, um, you know, bronze isn't typically shiny, but then all of a sudden you have these prints that you um, have to activate with light, um, which is very photographic, which I love. Um, the idea of color, how does color come in? And again, Tyson K and Liz playing off color. Again, the breakup of color, how even a black and white image is made up of color. Um, all these things, those kind of little internal conversation I have with myself as I'm walking through the gallery. Um, so that's perhaps overly, overly general, but um, you know, you, with each of you, I think we had really strong conversations and you had, each had opinions about what to show and you were open to suggestions and so I, I feel it is... Uh, you were like, no, no, no. <laughs> nah. There's somebody that's a question over there. It's not my style Oops. exactly, but... Um, <laughs> Just teasing. <laughs> I come around, I get the result I want in the end. <laughs> no. um, there is a question over there. Me? Me, yeah? Oh, hey. Um, Raymond, you mentioned, you, you said maybe two or three times fugitive image, and um, I just, I looked up fugitive because I know that it has multiple meanings and I wanted to 
make sure that I can encapsulate all of them. So one of them is running away or fleeing as from the law of or relating to fugitives, lasting only a short time, fleeting, difficult to comprehend or retain, elusive, given to change or disappearance, perishable, of temporary interest, uh, I promise this is going somewhere, wandering or tending to wander, vagabond, a person who flees, especially from a, a legal process, something flee fleeting or, f or ephemeral. And when I look up this definition, I feel like um, in its, in its multi multiplicity, it kind of, um, to, to me, captures a common denominator between the four bodies of work um, as, as you've, you've described them. Um, so I, I'd, 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 I'd like for any, any of you to whom this is, this is of interest is to speak to that idea of the fugitive image a little bit, a little bit more as it emerges as a common denominator. Uh, I definitely think about it as opposed to like the typical like terminology around photography of capture. Uh, so it's that thing of the, the world like escaping view. And I was just thinking about it in relation to um, these things in terms of like uh, seeing these images like in Taisuki's photograph here at a scale that is not what we see it as with the naked eye. It's like a technologically mediated, so it's this thing in terms of like a, a trying to get deeper and deeper into it to, to get to something that is kind of a, like about the, the magic of photography revealing a view of something that isn't otherwise available. It's this, uh, this thing about trying to like uh, uh, deal with the excessiveness of the visual world we live in or an archive revealing itself for being accumulated over time or the, the retro-reflective prints of being something that even when I'm looking at it with the glasses, the person beside me can't see the same thing. So it's that complex sort of uh, uh, having to deal with the fact that we didn't just don't see the same thing, and in fact, that thing doesn't exist in a fixed and stable way. It's an emergent, there's a, an emergent character to it that's fugitive, I guess. You were gonna jump in, Liz. Yes, I tried to think whether fugitive is something I would use for my work, because it's, if anything, anything, everything that I'm trying to avoid, because I, I can understand that perspective, but I refuse to stand in that corner. And I think when, for example, and I think again, it links actually very well because I think the idea that photography is not real, that it is a perception of whoever is looking, is one that I, I like to take on, you know? That's why I do and call it my archive because I think it's everyone's choice, you know? And I think for me, as I said, the, the reality of the moment is too exciting to try to call it whatever, you know, it's, it's exciting to take a picture. But equally, I think, choosing the people that I choose, I choose them because there's a lack of them, the way I see them. So, I guess we all say the same thing in different ways, which you will see upstairs, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Is there another question in this corner? My question, my question is predominantly uh, focused on Tuskegee. So, um, I come at this from a lens of economics, uh, macro, micro. Yeah. Uh, I always learned more from the macro, so I'm interested to hear your uh, what 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 is there to be learned from the, your micro images that you're presenting? And of course, I more than if this question elicits response to others, by all means. I welcome them, but predominantly Tuskegee. My 
What, what, is, what can we learn from your micro um, yeah. Um, I think the, um, yeah, it's my, you know, thinking, but uh, I think the micro images, it's, uh, of course, it's very abstract, but I think we can, you know, it's my feeling, but we can dive into the images and uh, we, can, um, we can express uh, physically, you know, of the small images because, because um, um, I think it's kind of um, same perspective to using a, a microscope to see the, um, our cell or our skin, you know. So, of course, it's uh, uh, information of the details and information of the object or subject. But, um, uh, yeah, I think micro small images, we can uh, dive into the images and uh, we can use the imagination or uh, our own um, image library, you know. Yeah. Anyone else want to pick up on that? Micro versus macro? I was, well, I was, when I was looking at his image on the screen, I was looking at the thing of the pixels and the Pika, and then having it translated through the digital, as you were saying, through the digital medium, I was trying to figure out what is it exactly I'm looking at? Mm. You know, am I, which, it's, it goes through four generations again before it reaches my eye. So that's really fascinating. That's an open question. There's like a tremendous satisfaction too, because it's like there might be something to learn from it, but just the like when you have that like uh, the the very moist sort of like surface on them, it's just like satisfying to look at. That I'm not even like processing it in terms of learning from it. It's simply like an experience of an image. That is like just had that color, just like God, it's it's intense. Other questions from the audience? Or are you all just dying to go two floors up to the fifth floor? Yes? One more question in the center. Thank you. My uh, question is related to the, the conversation that was just had, and it's around audience accessibility. Um, if you listen, it seems very conceptual, it seems very intellectual, um, very artistic, and you wonder about you know, is photography aspiring, you know, to, to be, you know, classified as, as fine art? And I just wonder if it becomes more remote and, and less accessible, and especially given that visual information is processed differently than all the other senses and, and differently than written information. Um, and, and photography, um, has traditionally been an accessible medium, and as it becomes more intellectualized, as it becomes more conceptualized, um, is, it, is it actually more remote uh, from a general audience, and it's really only accessible to a refined audience? Well, I think perhaps if I, I, I can offer one comment to that, which is, and you may have seen the show already, maybe not, but I think each experience that each of the artists offers upstairs is a really distinct one, and I think it is an experience, and it is, it engages the mind, but also the eye. Um, so I will say that I think the, well, the question is, the question is open. I don't know that it's an either or. It's not one or the other. I think it's what we're seeing is it can be many things at once. I mean, I, I think most of us like as many people as possible to like our work, 
So um, <laughs> I'm definitely on Instagram at Hank Willis Thomas. <laughs> um, so I, I I don't think that I I wouldn't say that from what I've experienced with the other artists that we're interested in making it remote. It's just our process to get to sh say something. I think um, th I used to go into museums, especially and see art and be like I don't I don't get it, and then. Someone asked me just to like not put the pressure on myself to trying to get it and just appreciating it for what it is. And I think that changed my perspective because then all of a sudden I didn't feel as alienated um, from it or wasn't as caught up with what I thought the artist was trying to do as much as I was with in my own relationship to it. So things that I once hated, I, start, I learned to love and I became one of those people who I used to not appreciate as much. and. Uh, and I, I, I find that that is kind of the joy of it, the fact that we work all so differently. And I wish I took pictures like you did, um, but you can vote for me. <laughs> um, but that's the, that was it. I was like, I want to do that. And I, I can't. I just, and so I do what I can do. Um, not that I didn't go to school for photography for 12 years. I just, it just can't do it. And I think that's the reality, I think, of each of us that we kind of, and you didn't study photography, and you identify as a photographer. So I think we all kind of found our way into the things that we, to express the way that we love to express. And uh, I think all of the work is like incredibly visually compelling. Like, uh, so there, there might be like a conceptual premise that the work operates from, but I think it's like aesthetically like, very accessible. It's something that, uh, that even to have someone explain it to you like might simply trivialize it as well. That it's like, uh, so I think a good thing is to like test your own experience of the work against, you know, what's been said about it or even to just like, just avoid like the, the didactic text altogether and be like, like what is this work? Like how would I describe it or explain it to myself in terms of simply what I see on the wall? Um, or like, uh, so it becomes a, a thing that is about like uh, um, trying to gauge like what it is that we're here talking about. And all of us have differing um, access to like everything in the world. So, um, so in that sense, like photography could be an analogy for that uh, in terms of, uh, you know, some greater awareness of uh, analog processes of it which um, uh, some of us have a very precise like chemical knowledge of that process and some of us are just like oh, I'm just gonna hit print and there it is so uh, so I think there's definitely like uh, 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 that distinction exists in so many realms that it's really a matter of like uh, uh, trying to articulate to yourself your experience in front of that work all right I think uh, time to go and see that work <laughs>